Many people don't get what they want from what they do. Not from their jobs, sometimes not their families, the government, their religion, and most importantly, not themselves. In our culture, something's missing. Part of what is missing is purpose, values, worthwhile standards against which our lives can be measured. The unexamined life is not worth living, and that was said by Socrates about 2,000 years ago. I think it's correct. If you don't examine your life, you most likely will scramble about seeking distraction in media, people's approval, drugs, shallow things. The thing that drives me to do this show, and much of what I do, is to try and influence people to start believing themselves by firstly starting to think for themselves. I want to learn from people who seem to be on a similar path of self-discovery in business, leadership, relationships, education, mental health and physical health and more. If we can really start to take our life seriously, I mean like as if we're not coming back, as if this is all we're guaranteed of in this life, then we really start listening and really want to examine what life is all about. You're listening to the Examine Life podcast with Matt Purcell. Our last episode with USA political celebrity star Dave Rubin on its first day had 21,000 downloads and listens, which was the most we've ever had in a day. And it went number one in Australia in its category. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much, Dave. I think if you haven't listened to the podcast, you really should. We talked about some really interesting topics like political correctness, offence, and the political left, which is something I've been really dying to get to talk to someone deeply about. And Dave is definitely someone in America which is well respected in that area. But for today's guest, I have Gabe Robertson. Now, Gabe is a director of Hunter Institute of Fashion, and he's been immersed within the fashion industry for over 14 years. So he's the head stylist of the shows The Voice, X Factor, and he's a celebrity stylist for many of the top names in showbiz, including Guy Sebastian. Gabe and I share a lot of common ground in our views on entrepreneurship, youth issues, and creativity. He's a great thinker, he's a good entrepreneur and innovator, and I really think he's got a great mind and a lot of great things to say in this episode. So make sure you check out the Hunter Institute of Fashion. He enrolls students, a number of students, every year, and he's capped for this year, but maybe you should check him out for 2020. If you're interested in fashion, he doesn't just teach you about fashion, he teaches you about business. And I think that's a vital component to be able to do well in any creative industry. Because you may be a great technician, a great artist, have some great ideas, but if you don't have a business mind, you don't have a business structure, you don't have a plan, you're most likely not going to go very far because you need to have those structures in place to be able to market, have a target audience, and to be able to get from A to B. So make sure you check out the Hunter Institute of Fashion. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Gabe Robinson. I'm here with Gabe Robinson, beautiful human being, celebrity stylist, businessman, entrepreneur, uh, great looking guy in a hat. Um, Gay, welcome to I'd, the show. I'd probably only agree with the last thing there. I like my hat. <laughs> thanks, uh, mate. I love thank, that hat too. Thanks for having me. No, it's awesome. Man, it's an interesting thing what you're doing because um, we're in Newcastle right now. Uh, the city is going through a big, uh, I guess, development and you've chosen to choose the Hunter to start a, a fashion school, right? Tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I man, I chose the Hunter for, for future work. I chose the Hunter for my future, for my family and mm. for myself. I think that I spent the last sort of almost 15 years in Sydney chasing um, career opportunities and uh, I got to experience a lot of amazing things and um, I just feel like Sydney's sort of held by the, the older generations and wealth and opportunities held by the older generations and 
the young generations I don't feel like are going to have the same opportunities there that existed 10, 15 years ago. So I feel like those opportunities are coming here and will be here for the next 20 years. This place is, will have the youth boom uh, and will mm. be our generation's future. I'm, I'm a huge believer in that and that's why I moved my whole life here and that's why I'm doing everything I can to sail that ship. What made you get into design? There's so many things. Obviously, you're a creative, right? You love music. You love lots of art forms of, of Yeah, mate, I fell into it, to be honest. I, um, I, when I was going through school, the standardised schooling system didn't resonate with the way I like to learn. I mean, mm. schools are becoming a lot more aware of learning techniques and are catering for a wider variety of how children learn. But mm. back in my day, it, it was read and repeat. And, you know, it's... I mean, I feel like our education system was built off what was an industrial revolution and we're well and truly past that model of, um, of, of city operations. So I know that schooling is changing and that's, I've started a school to drive that change as well. But yeah, in school, I was not a succeeder by any means. I, I succeeded in art, but my art teacher was a drunk, so it never really got me far. You, go. you know, it would be, you need to write an essay about why this artist is good. And I would say, well, can I write a constructive essay about why I don't think they're good? No, you can't do that. Well, I mean, that's the, to me, that's the opposite of what art is supposed to be about. It's, art is about interpretation. Mm-hmm. So you can't tell me how to interpret something. That's not <laughs> what this subject is about. But I was obviously not within the right schooling environment for the way I like to operate my brain. So, mm. yeah, by all means, I was, until I was probably 20 years old, I thought I was a really unintelligent human. And mm. now in my later years, I realise I'm actually quite smart and I'm proud to say that. It's an interesting thing. I actually agree, totally resonate with that myself. School really impacts us in that sense 100%. of intelligence. One teacher can change a student's life. Yeah. And, that, and one teacher started my next journey, which started the next journey and so on. And I originally left school. I, I wanted to become a, uh, a car mechanic at 17 because I got my P's and man, I love my car. <laughs> Rocket well, what was your yeah. first car? Your it first? was a 1983 Toyota Corona. Mine was a 1987 VL Commodore. Oh yeah, nice. Yes, yeah, so it seemed yeah. like a bus. Yeah, mine had a, a gear stick with the Toyota Coronas of that year. Their major flaw was that the gear, the gear stick um, had a plastic thread and that threaded into a metal thread in the gear box. Mm. So over time, the two threads would strip. Uh, and then my gear stick used to just come out all the time whilst I was driving. So I had to take all my, man, my manifold out in the middle and like I could see the road through my car. And oh. I used to just drive along and then me, third, me, gear stick would come out. Oh, fix it back Comedian. in. Fourth, fifth. It's like a movie, yeah. Yeah, but I didn't, I was, there was always fumes coming up in my car and people would get in my car and go, man, it's, I'm going to get high in here with all these fumes. And I'd be like, what? I can't smell anything. I was just so used to it. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to become a car mechanic just because I... I was a typical 17-year-old boy on his peas. Mm. Um, and then um, a friend of mine's father, I never had a dad, I never had a male role model in my life, and so I'd, I'd always sought those male role, male role models from other areas I've had to in my life. Yeah. Uh, and my friend's father, my best friend's dad, Lachlan's dad actually, mm. Ron Craggs, he was a very smart, wise man, he's a really nice-hearted bloke, and he sort of pushed a few books onto me, um, obviously seeing I needed some guidance, and, and I read a couple of these books, and they really... And one of them was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it really completely shifted my mindset on life and positioning and things you can do and can't do and so on. Um, and that, 
basically made me realize that I don't have to be a car mechanic to have a nice car. I can do whatever I want in my life and just pay a mechanic. And although that sounds simple, when I was 17, I just didn't seem to be able to put that together. Yeah, well. So that was like halfway through year 12. And then I was like, yeah, HSC, I'm going to go for it. But it was six months before the end. And I was the first year of a new HSC system that was about scaling and grading and depends what school you went to and subjects. And no one knew anything. And so I sort of got spat out at the end of year 12 with you know, a mark that was 70, averaging 70, I think. My, and then my UAI was 34. So my UAI was half of my mark. So mm. I, f- I technically found my HSC. I couldn't get into uni. I thought my life's over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a real drive now to chase a career. And so I sought out an opportunity to do a bridging course at uni. Yep. Did that bridging course and then chose science basically just because my science teacher was the only one that really didn't hate me in school. Wow. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know what I shouldn't have done that. I started, I started in science at uni, doing biotechnology, um, and then how I fell into fashion was, I was just um, miserable in that line of training, and I just started choosing some electives in arts and design just because I needed to get a creative outlet. Mm. Um, and then I just random. I just didn't like anything in the shop, so I just started making my own clothes. I didn't know what I was doing. I I'd cut stencils with my anatomy kit and I'd go to Bunnings and buy road spray cans and spray designs and wear them around and then everyone just was like, oh, I love this tea, I love these jeans, where did you get it? So I just started making business cards and I'd just sell it off my back. I'd just be like, yeah, cool, I can make one for you, I can make one for you. And I was making a weekly wage out of it. Like I was selling wow. jeans for like 300 bucks a pair. Yeah, I was making good money out of it. And I was well, like, Did you put a label on it at the time? Or yeah, like, it was uh, called Gabe Originals. Like it. Yeah, there's like only like... How um, old were you then? Were you like still like nine, I would have been 19, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I like that idea that you create things that you wish existed. Yeah, well, that's what I've always done. That's mm. why I did this as well. But yeah, so that my clothes were getting around town and then the owner of Breakaway Surf, Greg Day, he used to own O'Neill and he, back in my day, there was like a whole bunch of Breakaway Surfs here in Newcastle. Mm. He saw my stuff around and he tracked me down and said, come and be a designer for my in-house brands. Wow. That's so I thought, okay, wow, I should probably go and learn fashion now if I'm designing for these three brands. So I left the uni, went to the TAFE and studied fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that process, just the TAFEing environment, again, just didn't resonate with me. It was, to, it was to me, in my eyes, it was a style learning environment. Yeah. The teachers were dated in my mind and it just didn't resonate with me at that age and what I needed. Mm. So um, I left there and moved to Sydney and just crawled my way through the fashion world. Just crawled your way through Sydney. <laughs> Jeez. I, I love this so far because there's so many people in our day and age that have ideas, but they don't do anything on them. Yeah, my problem is probably more the other way. I'm a, my wife has to rein me back from doing too many things. Very much so for me too. Yeah. So like just when my child was, I had to start looking into daycare centres, I was like, there's no good daycare centres, that's it, I'm going to start a daycare centre. <laughs> no joke, yeah. I was looking at taking leases. Because I'm an RTO, I could transfer a lot of the, um, Gee. the things that were required across and you know, took my wife to flag it and go, all right, don't think you should be doing a daycare centre as well as a college, as well as content creating, as well as creative direction, as well as art direction. You need to... So, yeah, I'm kind of the opposite in that regard. Mm. Uh, but I like being a doer. I think it's yeah, better than just doing, being a talker. Yeah, me too. I've always been a doer. And we should support the doers in the world. 
just briefly, there's a little bit of a highlight reel I want to just get you to tell me. Like, you've worked with some pretty big names. Like, you've worked with, you said you met, you're pretty good friends with Guy Sebastian. You worked with him for a million years, you said. Yeah, so I was, I sort of do all Guy's creatives. So it started with me being his stylist, and then that led to me being his sort of creative director overall. He's a, he's one of, he's a very close friend of mine, actually. We've known each other for a long time. But yeah. um, he came to me at a stage in his career where, uh, he was looking for a new style direction and it was he was doing a lot of bow ties and suspenders at that stage and that was not yeah. my vibe and I was like, well, yeah, you know, I'd be happy to style you but this is the direction I'd want to go in and um, I feel that I completely sort of helped Guy rebrand his model and turn him into a really well-polished urban artist on a, across visual platforms and, yeah, I do his um, album art designs, tours sort of stuff, yeah. all his merch for his tours um, music video concepts, all that, all that kind of stuff. Well, wow. and X Factor or uh, The Voice was it as well? Yeah, so I, I started as a stylist within the team on X Factor, and then when I left there, I moved across to uh, The Voice to, to become the head stylist and put my whole team together and be the head stylist for that show, which I did for three years or so, three to four, and then I was getting more work as a creative director and less as a stylist, and that's where I wanted to go. So. Um, I, I left The Voice and travelled around South America for a while and saw a bit of the world and yep. then I went over and did all guys Eurovision performance. That was great, man. I was yeah. the guy holding the Australian flag up the wrong way around, around <laughs> all the Russians probably. <laughs> <laughs> that was a crazy experience, that one. Oh, you're famous, that's great. Um, yeah, and then I came back as the creative producer on The Voice, so then I put together all the staging concepts and managed all the creatives on, uh, holistically for The Voice for two or three more years from there. Um, and then I basically moved all of that to the Hunter region, and then fast forward two years, and then we're sitting in. We're this sitting room. in this. Yeah, well, you come from just spray painting jeans, you know, like creating things that you wish existed. Um, someone spotting it because you're out there, and that's a great principle already to, to learn from. But tell us a little bit about Sydney. So when you went to Sydney, like where, that's where the big smoke is. Yeah. I mean, you got a little bit of traction experience from Newcastle, but what happened with? How did you get into the Sydney scene? It all completely stopped. As soon as I got to Sydney, it was a too bad, so sad, and had to start again, basically. So wow. I went from designing for three brands here, um, being really well sort of structured within the community. I was quite known across the area, and I was sort of a creative push in this region, especially within the fashion world. Back then, it wasn't fashion wasn't something that people did. It wasn't... This was 2000, so this was... I mean, Subi sort of did think of the rats on the catwalk in what, like 01 or 02, I think. So especially in menswear, mm. there was no menswear, really. So mm. um, it wasn't a common thing. So when I was doing fashion, it was quite obscure that I would be doing that. And I was like in full flight of creative explosion. I was, my jeans had 50,000 things drawn all over them, stitched all over them. I had 500 pins all over it. What I'd be, I was chopping and changing everything. I'd t-shirts with designs all over them i had a black mohawk with a pink mullet it was it was going full my creative was going full swing post um medical medical uh, biomedical training so yeah it was um yeah i was just really ex expressing myself holistically and then when i moved to sydney um designing from three brands and being very settled here mm. it was like no one cared there because i wow. i made the transition on my own mm. i just moved there without having connections and knowing anyone. 
So I came back to door knocking again and wow. being a, a, a bloke within fashion who speaks like a bit of a bogan because I was raised in the country, <laughs> you know, usually the steps through to design is, you know, you go and work on reception and then you work your way through to the design. But, you know, female fashion houses don't want a bogan Aussie dude answering their phones. So that was out for me. So uh, I had to start back in the warehouse packing boxes of stock. And I went to the Discovery Group, which was like Charlie Brown, Howard Showers. They had about seven or eight brands, a big, big business. Um, and I had to start from the bottom, um, literally in a 50-degree warehouse, packing dusty boxes of stock. Talk us through that Gabe Robinson then. Like what, that what was, was a real thinking? challenge for me. That was a defining point in my commitment to my passion and me mm. chasing it. I had to make a hard decisions and be tough on myself to get through that as a situation. And I did that by setting, and I tell my students this often, and the important thing is to create a plan, stick to your plan, um, create measurable goals to get to where you want to go uh, so you will get there. I went there and I said, okay, I'll work here for one year to get grounded in Sydney, to get what experiences I can. I won't let working in a stale environment that's not using my creativity and my brain get me down. I'll push that focus across to learning everything I can about this large, successful business model. Mm. I'd, I'd spend my lunch breaks going and speaking to the pattern makers. I'd spend my morning teas going to production or sampling and just talking to them and feeding information out of them and getting to know what everyone did in every area. Um, being a mm. fly on the wall of this business basically because I had a lot of mental spare energy. So mm. instead of the fact that I was working in a job I didn't like get me down, I'd use that as a driver to put my energy that I had spare into other things. Mm. That's really good. So I did a year of that. Um, and the boss was a, he was a real cruel human. He was not a nice man. Mm. He was constantly like, had sexual harassment claims against him. Oh. He was bullying his staff. Nah. He was a real, not a nice human. Um, and that was another reason why I said, I'll only do one year because I don't, I don't work for people I don't like. Yeah. And I don't think anyone should. If you don't like them, don't work with them. Mm. Do other things because th that negative energy in your life will only make things worse for you. In every area. In every area. Yeah. So. Uh, but I, I'd, I'd already made my plan of one year and I needed it to get grounded in Sydney. So he would call, you know, he knew I wanted to move to design and he was like, I'll never move you anyway, you'll be here forever, you know, that kind of a dude. Wow. So, you know, he called me over the PA system and Gabe, come up to my office and empty my bin. Not oh, my job really? at all, you know, but, but I'd, be, mate, I'd be like, fine, man. I'd come up with a smile. I'd say, how you going? And I'd never let him break me down and he hated that, that. But I mean, I would use that as a learning opportunity again. So I would say, fine, you want, to take my, you want me to take out your trash? I'd take his trash out and I'd have a look through what he's throwing out. What notes are you writing down? What sort of, how are you operating your business? If you're gonna push me down and make me take out your trash, I'll learn from your rubbish. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. So, what I love about this experience you had is you didn't go in at scene entitled. You went in, or well, that might've been challenged if you had any bit of a time on you. you built resilience in that period because being a doer and you know wanting you probably wanted to get into the scene really quickly as possible but yeah to, but everything's to, a strategy and everything takes time I yeah mean, that's right there's no yeah. shortcuts in life i mean people always come up to me and say oh how did you become a celebrity stylist how did you style lupe fiasco what's the magic pill by the way yeah. Yeah. what's the quick thing to do that and mm. i'm like the quick thing is about 15 years of hard work yeah that's it there's not really some kind of there's the secret door it's the Hogwarts station, just run through the bricks and you're going to get there. Yeah. You know, it's, that's not what, the, what, they say what it, it is. They say it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. Yeah. Yeah. All our guests so far have had certain patterns because I believe success leaves clues. And they've all gone through a period of, of time where the, their entitlement or their attitude 
um, and their goals have been tested. Everything's been tested and that's really the defining moment. It's like someone could have, like yourself, gone to Sydney, having a little bit of success in Newcastle, be like, this is bull crap working for this crap boss, I'm going back to Newcastle. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I never yeah. really contemplated that. But, but you didn't, yeah. My, my dreams yeah. were so much higher than I was never going to go backwards. When was your first experience of being a director? Because there's one thing working for yourself, there's another thing working with a team. You know, and um, as in, you mean director as in directing people? Yeah, directing people, like being a manager, being like someone who has a concept, you are the responsible person. Here's, you've got to be a leader with your team and give instructions, communication. That's a whole, that's yeah, a different it is, it is. set of skills. Probably the first time that that was on a legitimate level as opposed to just people being, me being superior to others within a working environment mm. would have been when I took over the headstyles role of The Voice or when I was, became the headstyles for that new show that was launching. Before that, I'd been within a team and I'd been really a, a major driver within that team. Um, so I, was very, I knew I could do the role, but yeah, putting together my own team, hiring multiple staff, mm. delegating workloads and so on, would have been when I put together my team for The Voice as the headstylist. Yeah. And that led to this tattoo on my arm here, which is, because I was afraid to do it, I was like, man, can I do this? You know, like, this is big, this is millions of people watching, this is millions of dollars. Like, this is really big stuff. Like, if I stuff this up, it's seen by everyone across the whole country. <laughs> There's literally millions of dollars per week going into this production. It's no joke. So if I, you know, and I was 26 maybe? I'm not sure, I can't remember. But yeah, I was like, okay, this is full on. Um, and that was this tattoo here, which is a paper airplane with a little bent nose because I just had to convince myself that it's okay to fly as in take the chance, but it's okay to crash as well because flying and crashing is all part of that flight of journey. So uh, yeah, my tattoos, are, they all look stupid, but they all mean things to me and I get them during my walk of my life. And that was probably that moment where I was, had to take responsibility and be able to delegate for these amount of people on such a large, impactful scale. Yeah, and you handled it all right. Obviously, you didn't. Yeah, man, <laughs> didn't I didn't make any big mistakes that ruined your career. Or no, no, I, they were. I they were happy. I did it year in year out until I got promoted to creative producer and did that year in year out until I walked onto other other ventures. I want to hear your philosophy on fashion and fashion styling. So, like philosophy meaning, why is it important? You know, it's funny because I'm probably the last person you would think that would be a stylist or was a stylist. It sounds like a weird story. Yeah. I actually don't care about clothes at all. <laughs> it's so, you know, I grew up in the bush where I ran around in Superman nunnies until I was 12. Yeah, I was you know? Batman, but yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I literally don't care about fashion, yet I've worked in it my whole life. It's so weird. Uh, I don't really don't know how to explain that. You have to have direction. So when you say working with like a guy like Guy, and Guy comes up to you and goes, oh, I want to change my direction, I think you've got an idea. Talk us through how you think about fashion. You might not care about fashion, like you said, but there is a certain style or mold of how things um, fit. Like, yeah, fundamentally, what a human, what a person should do, really, is everyone's got a different body shape and different mm. skin tone, and so on and so forth, and different cultural influences in their upbringing and their life. So, what's in the trend of fashion can't really work on everyone. So, mm. what you need to do is just find your own channel within that space. Fashion, really, to me, fashion is just someone glowing the way they glow best. If you pull off a hessian sack, that is fashion. 
So it doesn't really matter what the clothing items are, what the labels are inside the clothing says. It's if you put your package together that resonates a glow, people want that glow. Mm. And that is what builds trends and that's what turns things into a fashionable direction. It's people that know how to put together themselves. Mm. And, but the fashion is so much more than just the clothing too. It's, it's confidence of wear. It's, it's, a, it's a whole bunch of things, you know? Yep. Without sounding lame, talking about fashion for philosophically. <laughs> <laughs> no, because there is like a bit of a science to, to it. Because like, I like what you said about everyone's got a different body type. Everyone's a bit taller or shorter or wider or yeah. skin tone. So would you say that when you look at styling someone, it's almost like a, a you've got like a lab coat on, you're like, hmm, you've got a rounder face, Matt, you know, and that would, this would really balance that out with this. And you've got this type of body shape. And I think these colors would enhance this and this. Like, yeah, one, one of the biggest things that stylists, people that want to become a stylist, I guess if anyone's listening, that's like, I want to become a celebrity stylist. I want to become a stylist. Um, the biggest challenge that you will have is that most people will generally put their style on other people. Mm, they don't know how to transfer style to that person's needs. So luckily Guy and I have shared a similar style ability. Like, although our body shapes are different, mm. stylistically there's a lot of transfer. Yep. Like I can't wear skinny jeans because my calf muscles are non-existent. You know? so I wear, but I'm taller so I can wear drop crutch and get a bit of relaxed lower end and I can get long line tees to make up for my drop and there's you know, whereas shorter people can't do those kind of layering setups and this and that. So, mm. yeah, the biggest thing that you would need to learn if you want to become a stylist is learning how to style people outside of what you would usually do. Mm. So practice styling your friends and people that are so different to you in their skin tone and body shape and things they're into. See if you can pull that off. Styling someone is not an easy thing to do. People, it's so weird. People, even people that say that they, want, they need styling or they, they don't think they know what their style is, they may not know what their style is, but they definitely know where their style's not. Not, yeah. So, I mean, when I was styling The Voice and X Factor, for instance, I would be meeting these contestants just after they'd gone on stage and sung and got everyone turned around. Bang, you're on, you're into the next round. They'd go straight off stage and come to see me. So they're all jacked up and excited. They just got through. The parents are all screaming. And I'd have to sit down with them. And then after they see me, they've got to go see these people, these people, press shots you know, a whole whirlwind of next stage of that run. Mm. So I get these people to come to me and I've got them for 10 minutes. So within 10 minutes, I need to be able to find out their influences, find out what they like, find out their dislikes, get their measurements, ask them how they kind of dress, what brands they like, what do they usually wear, and and decipher from just that quick little 10-minute run times 100 people that are coming at me within 10-minute successions, what's going to work for them because the next time I see them, I need to have five different outfits that are confirmed, which means you need at least 20 options of outfits, not 20 options of clothing, full 20 option outfits ready to go. And the closer you are at nailing that, obviously the easier your role as a stylist is. Mm. So my ability to be able to pick someone apart in 10 minutes, you need to know a lot more than just their body. Like, what are they into? What music do they like? This is a music show. Who are you influenced by? These people, those people. Because people emulate, obviously, the people they love and like and want to become. So... I need to basically get inside their head as quick as I can and draw out everything relevant. And also on top of that, often what people think they want is not what's good for them. Mm. They, they, might, they might love Johnny Depp, and, but Johnny Depp's style will not transfer to you. That's right, yeah. So on top of the fact that I need to learn their shapes, their sizes, their likes, their dislikes, their influences, I also need to then 
casually adapt what will work into them through a fitting session and make them happy with what they're wearing, even if it's not what they'd initially come in thinking they would wear. Mm. Because if they're not happy with what they're wearing, it shows they're uncomfortable, they won't sing as well, and then my job, I've failed in my role. Yeah, it's a confidence thing then, yeah. So yeah, there's a whole, you know, I get people who come to me and say, I only ever wear black. You know, that's not gonna, have you ever seen any celebrity their whole life only ever wear black? You know, not really. No, only, you only know? Johnny Cash. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now we're gonna come back after the break and talk a little bit about your story, where you came from, and the work you're doing with youth and a little bit about men in your life if you love that stuff. Cool. Thanks, guys. Over 90% of small businesses fail in its first year. That's a true stat across the Western world, and it's very sad because in Australia, 60 to 70% of the economy is driven by small businesses. Now, we need to really give as much support to small businesses as possible, small to medium-sized businesses, and I really want to encourage you, if you're in a business, you're a brand, Go to mentor.com.au where you'll find tools and templates and you'll be able to seek mentorship for qualified people who are in their industries, say accounting, marketing, exporting, whatever field, whatever stage you're in in business, you'll be able to find someone for some guidance. Now, I think it's very important to recognize our own limitations and I've sought after professional support before in business and in personal development and I think Business owners are so tied up in making sure the cogs are running and they're in the business so much, it's hard to be able to maybe admit some some things or to see some things or make time for some things. And I really can't recommend you considering getting some external objective feedback about your business and see where it's at. So you jump on mentor.com.au and you'll be able to download some really great templates and get some business rewards while you're at it. We've heard a little bit about what you do and what you've been up to professionally for a while and I want to get into your story. So you mentioned to me off camera that yeah, you've had yeah, your, your story with your childhood hasn't been all rosy. You haven't had your dad around, you, you lived out in the country in the bush, right? Yeah, but I mean, I, I mean I've, I'm, all, I'm a huge believer in not letting your upbringing shape who you are and not using your upbringing as an excuse or holding on to it to drive, to bring your life down, basically. We've all mm. got our own lives, we all have problems and we all have challenges. Mm. Even the happiest couples on, and families on paper are not as happy as they appear. So we all have a story of elements of struggle and happiness and this and that. So yeah, I don't cry me river over it, we just get cracking on life. Yeah, but it's interesting to figure out where people have come from, because a lot of our upbringing explains a lot of our drive. Like, totally. Um, so how we were loved, our examples of love, examples mm-hmm. of work ethic, the, the, the lack of certain needs being met mm-hmm. can often lead to you being responsible for those areas that were in deficit. So if dad wasn't around or mum wasn't around, then you might have to step up in those areas or find someone in that area. Yeah, nature and nurture. Yeah. It's funny, I think it's shot my system, you weren't in the fashion, like it's not a natural thing. To, for, it's like, oh, you didn't wake up and be like, oh, I've always been in the fashion, Matt. I've always walked and wanted to wear hats. It's like, <laughs> no, it's like I grew up, I run around the bush. You know, I grew up in, so what area were you? Kempsey, was it? Yeah, it was Willowarren. It's like, it's like an hour and a half inland from Kempsey. I think there's the whole population of the town. It's like 250 people or something. It's tiny. Wow. So then there, there was no, there was, uh, oh, there was a primary school there. I went to a lot of different schools. I went to 
five different primary schools and three different high schools. I moved around a lot when I was little. Yeah, um, so did I. Just been raised by a mum and all, I don't know. You'd have to ask my mum about why we did, I don't know, we just did. Um, <laughs> How many siblings? I've got an older brother and a younger sister. Yeah, yeah. I moved house probably about 12 times. Probably 12, 12 times, yeah. My mum's a hero, man. Like, um, I saw my mum, my dad once a fortnight. Um, and my mum my was always my biggest supporter and drove me where I needed to go and like really encouraged me. Your mum sounds like a bit of a hero too. You know, yeah, oh man, raising, and my brother and I were, we were very free-spirited kids, um, so, and my mum raised us to be that way, but oh, I, now having my own daughter, just <laughs> looking back at my brother and I and our antics, far out. I'm surprised we didn't die, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the stuff that you're doing with youth up here now, because we talked a little bit off camera about how you really wanted to nurture and, and raise up a generation of of entrepreneurs, in a way, thinkers in, in this creative industry, because you see that there's it is possible, you, your evidence that's possible to have a career in the fashion industry. Yeah, of um, course. Of course, yeah. I, I hate when people say that something is, oh, don't try and do fashion or don't try and do this because too many people want to do it, it's too hard. That, everything is hard. Not one, real, not one job is going to be easy. And if you let someone tell you that too many people want to do it so you shouldn't do it, if you're really driven and you really want something, you're not up against all the other people that want to do it. If, you, your, if your level of drive is in the 5% of everyone else trying, you only have 5% of competition. Mm. So it doesn't really matter. And it's not a reflection of your lack of ability. It's a reflection of their limit on you. Most of the time, people will tell you things they can't do, yeah. Yeah. And it's the same for music. It's the same for, if you think about original art, fashion, music, film, photography, all that stuff, it's the same type of tall poppy syndrome attitude that you can't do it. Like it's really oh, totally. difficult. Yeah. yeah, 100%. I mean, anything in the creative, as a creative spectrum, yeah, people will say don't take that walk and you can't do it. But I know a lot of successful people and I consider myself successful in my walk. So you can do it. You most definitely can make a life of it. And mm. There's no reason why you couldn't. You, no reason why you couldn't make any more of a life out of it than that, than you could becoming a plumber. I'm just kind of basing this off what I've learned about you so far is like I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that this school was another one of your adventures of I wish this thing existed this is something that I wish existed yeah well the whole reason why I started this college is well, I started my career here when I was 18 19 and I just struggled my way through went to a few models of training that just didn't work for me and then I left yeah so the, and I've got a lot of great friends here so I'd always be coming back to Newcastle whilst I was in Sydney and working in New York or LA or whatever I'd still come back to Newcastle and um, the whole time over those 15 years, I was just always like, there is still nothing here for the 18-year-old me still. If mm. there was an 18-year-old me here right now, the right guidance that I needed 15 years ago is still not here now. So it just got to a point where my, my city work was hitting a stage where I'd done everything I could in Sydney. I'd worked on every large thing there was to work on. And my work was starting to take me to New York and LA and I was going out there and shooting music videos and doing things over, the, over in those areas. And then I had to make a decision at around 31 maybe, 30, 31, that I needed to either move to New York or LA and then let that ball keep rolling mm. or, and I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to start a family soon. I was a country kid. I, I, like, us, I like Australia. Mm. So... Um, I, and I was, I was really moving into this space, I was moving into a role of kind of a, yeah, a creative director and a producer and 
you know, I've worked in TV for 10 years, but I never had a television in my house. You know, it's odd. I don't, <laughs> it, in the industry I'm working in, mm. I'm not, I don't watch it. So it's weird. It, it didn't seem to align with my life holistically. Mm. So um, I've always been passionate about te- like I'd, I'd always taught on the side, like I'd always go to unis and lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through a weird stage at 26 where I was like, oh, I needed to get a degree. I have to have a degree if I'm going to be a real yeah. good adult. Uh, so I went back into to uni and I was managing a menswear brand at the time, three days a week, and I was studying two days a week. And all the other students were just like, they're all just talking about trying to get these jobs and I was already doing it. And I was like, well, and I, I was like, why am I back here studying when I'm doing the thing everyone here is talking about trying to get? Without a degree, without that stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. So then I left again and went back to working and then my uni rang me and said, come and lecture. So I went back the next semester as the lecturer of the, the class that, the semester before I was sitting in. Mm. Hi, I'm Gabe Robinson, I'm your lecturer. Whereas yeah. I was sitting next to you last semester. See, that's the thing with art. I've always said this to my students when they felt like oh, I needed to be an academic or need to go to thing for this. I'm like, ask Guy Sebastian, um, what's his degree in singing? Yeah. Has he got a degree in singing? And would you think less of his ability if he didn't, if he didn't have a degree? Yeah. Art's different, different form. That's why it's art and not something else, you know? Like yeah. It's, yeah, it's, you can't teach an eye and you can't teach an ear. No. Um, what you can teach is some professional skills to help them harness those things. That's important. It's transferable objective skills that are helpful, but then it's, that doesn't necessarily, it's transferable. There's like objective things for personalities as well. So yeah, your totally. school, but what's your main objective with this school here that differs from maybe... The, the TAFE or the, the other things that are on offer for the students? When I was building this college, my main driver was I wanted to build a college that was made for the 18-year-old me and the me with an 18-year-old. So mm. if, I had, if my daughter was 18 and said she loved fashion and she wanted to go and do fashion, I made a college that would suit that environment. Mm. So if I was the father in that instance, I would be worried that, oh, is my, is my daughter really going to be into fashion forever? Is in five years from now, is she going to want to still do it? Uh, you know, is she going to be able to get a job in this industry that can be difficult? Um, and then as the 18-year-old, me needing the direction, needing mentoring, needing help building career plans, needing help initiating them, needing help building connections of their own and so on and finding opportunity, um, that was the driving force behind this RTO, was, um, was meeting those two needs. Yeah. So that's why our qualification is actually, a, it's a business it's, it's business fundamentally. We're a fashion business college. Yeah, We're not exactly. fashion design. Mm. So, and the reason for that is because for the me with an 18-year-old daughter, if in five years from now she doesn't want to be a designer, and I wanted to be a designer until I was, and then I wanted to be a brand manager, and then I wanted to be an art director, and then I wanted to be a creative director. So where I wanted to be at 18 is not where I am now. It changed all the time, and it always will. Yeah. And now I'm a college director. Did I ever think I would do that? Yeah. No. And a what will I do next? I don't know. But business carries on with all those That's different right. changes. So our qualification is business. So if you do want to rebrand yourself in the future, you can transfer this qualification to any area you want to go. And look at the lecturer. So like some lecturers aren't products of what they're speaking about, meaning like they haven't done what they're speaking. They're not practicing what they preach. Yeah. They haven't run, been in the fashion industry, but yet they're talking about it. You're the opposite. <laughs> You're like, I've... Yeah. I've been, I've done the stuff, and that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting angle. Well, again, it's the same thing. Like I'm the last person you'd expect to be a stylist. I'm also the last person you'd expect to be a college director. Hmm. 
I don't, and I think that works to my, it seems to have always worked to my strength. Mm. So I just, again, I just, I do it, so I did it. Well, for people listening that are interested in, in rebranding themselves or restyling themselves, like what's, what's the right thinking that should be um, thinking, thinking for themselves? Like what's some questions that you'd ask them to ask themselves? Well, I mean, it's the similar thing happens when students come to us. They're in that exact sort of situation. It's maybe not a rebrand, but they're trying to find their first brand mm. in their mind. So who are they and what they want to be? Um, so a huge part of that is breaking them down. And that's our actual first major project in our subject is called Operation U. It's based off a, a, a what is probably our least fun subject in the whole thing, which is managing personal work priorities and professional development. And it goes into a whole lot of like, boring level business acronym like setting smart goals and so on and priority matrices but as lame as all those things sound there's a reason they exist and they serve good purposes used the right way so Mm. i in this first subject i i get the student to pretty much break themselves down i this is whole assignment it just pokes and prods them to just list things and mention things even if they don't understand why just putting it down and then we help them make that plan from there so we mm. help them understand themselves through that major project. So writing down all their strengths, all their weaknesses, everything that they know about in this town that could be a professional opportunity for them, mm. areas of interest in the industry that they have, people that they ex- already know across um, overlapping industries. Do you know a photographer? Do you know hair and makeup people? Do, who do you know? What do you know? What do you like? What are you good at? What are you not good at? Uh, where do you want to be in two years, five years, ten years? Poke, poke, poke. And then from that, I sit down with them and go, okay, let's make a plan here. Let's pull it all together so we can start taking step after step until you get there, basically. I often use this analogy um, because what you said there was self, it's like people need to be self-aware. 100%. And I think we're innately designers in the sense that we use the raw materials of our life. So our past, our stories, our skills, our opportunities, our location. And if you, if you take the perspective that I'm a designer, then the designers use the raw materials to make something of it. Yeah. You know, and that's what you said to do. It's like, you've got things for offer. You've got things within your grasp. But just, are you aware of that? Are you and aware yeah. of that? And that's... Yeah. The, when I started a school, the biggest thing uh, that I, I think about education is that with this day and age, stu- kids have had a phone since they were five or mm. less I don't you know it's getting lower and lower so students are walking around with everything that they want to know about the entire world they can find it right here in their pocket true so it's not about information anymore mm. it's about what to do with information true so we don't we pass over information as background training and knowledge and readings but what we train you to do is what to do with that information, like students are now overwhelmed with knowledge yeah. and it's what to do with it is they're, what they're struggling with. Yeah, that's why mentorship is such an Huge. important part right now. And that's why we're yeah. both on the same path here. Yeah, and in that my first subject, again, I mentor them, but I make them go and get another mentor. Yeah. And I preach heavily on continuous mentoring through your whole career, from now on forever. Have mm. a mentor. Um, yeah. And my mentor is teaching me about the importance of menteeing. Yeah. And the transfer of knowledge back the other way, which I'd never really considered until recently when he was talking to me about it. Um, and he was saying that, you know, the mentor and the mentee is equally as important and that the mentor needs to regurgitate what they've done and pass it back. Because it's also about them kind of re-updating their processes in, the, in their own heads in a more matured state each time. So mm. there is a purpose to both. And that's why the pro, that mentor-mentee relationship exists. 
Yeah, it's true because we are social creatures. We do imitate and we need to have an example to see what, or things just become an abstract ration, rational thought. That's the thing about without role models, without guidance, things become an abstract idea. And it's yeah. very hard. Like how, that's why people often say, I think, in my opinion, oh, you can't make it in the music industry because they have this abstract idea of rational thinking of going, I can't see how that's possible with my knowledge. I don't yeah. see any, I don't know anyone that does that. Doesn't mean that's true. Doesn't mean that's not possible. And that doesn't mean that's forever either. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can make changes tomorrow that change all of that. Mm-hmm. And that all just, yeah. And it all just comes down to making a plan, like making an educated, structured plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to, you need to, you do need to have elements of tools within your repertoire to do that. And that's why I believe in education and training. Mm. But do you need to do seven years or something or five years or something? It depends what it is. It Medicine, probably. Yep. Music, maybe not. No. Maybe one year and then start getting into it. You mm. know, it really depends on what it is and where it is. But what I believe in fashion is it's a hands-on industry. This is kind of a trade. Yeah, that's a good but way to look at it. you do need to have um, professional skills behind you. Yeah, you need those, that, that business-minded um, nature. I think what we both really align on is the importance of knowing yourself. And I think a lot of the needs out there at the moment, like I said uh, before, was we're in an existential crisis right now. If there's gonna be, we've had plagues, we've had wars, We've had famines that have wiped out millions of people. But in Australia right now, speaking locally, um, we have, like you said, if you've got an iPhone, you have more access to more information than NASA did back when they did the first moon launch. Yeah. We've got fast food, we've got fast, we've got fast everything. When, when, when the internet's yeah. not working very quickly. That's a big deal. Waiting is the, big, the, waiting is the worst thing ever for people today. Yeah, attention spans are at an all-time low. Yeah, uh, social option, media influences yeah. at an all-time high. Option yeah. anxiety is high because there's so many options. Yeah. Like you say, like overwhelm. Yeah. So it's like, how do we navigate through that world where we've got so much noise yeah. and so much opportunity? It's overwhelming. And, and some people are aware that this is a great time to live, but how yeah. the hell do I, how do I, how the hell how do, do I put it together? find myself and put it together? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when we have students that want to come here, they, I meet with every one of them initially. To, they, they have to put in an expression of interest form and they talk about themselves and then I meet with them mm. and, be, and I need to get to know them and I want to make sure that they're on the right path to where they want to go uh, and our place is right for them and our type of training is right for them. Um, and a lot of them come to me with 25,000 ideas of the things they want to do, yet they've just been working in retail for seven years and done none of them. Yeah. You know, mm. it's like they want to do everything so they end up doing nothing yeah. because of this, every opportunity, but without the way to navigate through this storm of the new world we live in in a, in a, in a Western culture, they do nothing because it's hard. As, e- as easy as their lives are, it's actually hard. You know, I call it the, the new C word that people don't want to say is commit. Like people don't want to commit. They, they have a fear of committing to things. Is like, I feel committing to a gym, like gym memberships even, for example, or saying like, no contract, you know, for 12 yeah, months, blah, blah, yeah. blah. I feel committing, because it's that what if factor, like what if I commit and it doesn't go off and I miss out? What if I... Yeah, what if I fail to the thing I committed to? Yeah, and again, in our first subject, um, I get students to forcibly commit to some of these ideas because it's the first start of actually getting them. Because mm. like, you, unless you really convince yourself you're going to do it, if there's always the secret backdoor out, you're never going to chase it wholeheartedly because you secretly know 
I can just duck out that door if it gets a bit difficult and then I just don't worry about it. Yeah. Whereas I get students to physically put things down about that they want to achieve. I get them to make goal boards yep. that they want to achieve. And you know, so we, you make a goal board. But you know, why do you think that pe- people are visual, hum- we're visual people. Yep. Um, you look at someone who doesn't like the job they're in, I guarantee you their desk at work is covered in things that inspire them mm. because they need it. Yeah. Or else they can't do this job they don't like. Mm. People that love what they do, don't really have as much around them because they're living it. Everything yeah. they've seen their day in, day out, they, that is their goal board. They're living it. Mm. The people that don't have it create reminders to feel happy to keep going in that scenario. So um, I get students to create this goal board of what they want because I want them to physicalize their ideas and their dreams because the more you make them physical, the more you're bound to having to make them real. Newton's first law of motion is like an object will remain at rest or in this in the same trajectory unless an external force would put it off course. So this cup will remain at rest unless I move it and the ball will keep rolling in the same direction unless something moves it. And I believe it's the same for human beings. Yeah. It's like, mate, I, I tell my, my clients who get coaching from me, if you've got an idea that um, has been bugging you for ages and you've got dreams and you, and you not, haven't moved on it, you've got to commit, say, put a number on it. You've got yeah. to and, and have a mentor, someone holding you accountable to your aim yeah. so that you don't get um, distracted and you don't have um, a, a moment of weakness and just quit again. Yeah. So you've got to commit a certain amount of time at all. Um, you will never happen. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm huge on um, opening doors and closing doors. I, I'm big on you never make a bad move if it moves forward and it can be left and right the worst thing you can do is do nothing at all. Yeah. Because, I mean, you've, you've got nothing to gain. And then if you take a few s- steps ahead, you've got nothing to lose because you'll be where you were anyway. Yeah. So uh, the only thing that you can do is just not be opening doors. Yeah. If, if, as long as you're opening a new door in any direction, it is a step closer to where you would want to be as opposed to opening none of them. Yeah. And I see failure as feedback, honestly. Like failure is like oh, a very... You will not speak to anyone that's successful and they will not tell you they about fail failures. fail their way, yeah, absolutely. Like, if you are afraid to fail, then you should internalize back and then get around that as an, as an actual professional issue that you have before you do anything else. You need to learn to like failure, really. Um, you need to learn to face failure um, and take feedback from failure and grow from that. You yeah. have to. It's impossible to get to anywhere in life without failure. Like we were talking before um, about what people's purpose in life and, you know, the rich people that um, have their, the purpose in their life and so on. It's like failure is what gives you the appreciation of life and mm. hard work in appreciation of love is grows, you know, and we're talking about the shortcuts of doors and they don't exist. It's the time and effort you put into something that gives you the reward. It's the journey, not the actual end note. Yes, it's the struggle, yeah, through it. and. I just want to finish in this note, Gabe, because um, I don't think we can have a round two here. This is, um, we haven't even got into the real, real deep, juicy stuff that I, <laughs> I love in my head. But um, you've seen probably a lot of range, a big range of, of humanity from really wealthy people, middle class, we're talking incomes and stuff. And in our society, it's, media tells us that the, the aim is to have more, earn more, yeah, totally. <laughs> and that means you'll be more and you'll be happier, right? Yeah, that's what they tell you. I just want to let you out. I'll take you off the leash there and talk, tell me about that because 
You've seen you you've you've seen it. You've seen yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I've worked with I've worked with some really, really, really rich people. I've sort of I've been in some crazy environments with uh, with very wealthy people and very very influential people. Mm. Um, uh, so I, and then at the same time I've been at the lowest and the low and seen the people in the lowest area and all the way through. Um, and if you're talking about where that sits with happiness and what where I would sit with happiness in that is that um, yeah there's the richer you are and the more powerful you are is, does is not a direct correlation to happiness most of the time it actually works to the counterpart of that mm. I would me personally I would not want to be a millionaire and I would not want to be famous mm. it's because so weird see. so much of our generation want to become famous with mm. social media and likes and followers and we want more of them stack them on stack them on it, but that's actually it's it's the opposite to, to happiness in my opinion why do you think it's such an attractive thing to people like what's the promise that it's what's it's, the promise of people believing they will give yeah it's validation i think it's mm. people if people aren't able to self-validate they seek it in others mm, and majority well of people seek validation in others because they haven't in, they haven't been become self-aware or happy enough in themselves it's the same principle if you want to love someone. If you don't love yourself, you won't be able to love them. Mm, it's very true. It's, if you read a book, say, um, the, the Five Love Languages book, for instance. Great book. Great mm. book. Mm. Uh, and, and if you have never read that and you're in relationships and you want to work out about how people are and what, how people give and receive love, and it's just a, that book will transfer pa- past a relationship. I mean, relationships are professional and personal and romantic so relationships can transfer across a lot of spectrums mm. but yeah love languages and learning about how people like to give and receive love and love tanks and knowing when if your love tank is not full you can't give love to other people and you that can't can give be, what you don't have that's right yeah it's just taking from you and then you and you have to by priority make yourself happy first before you can make others happy and you should have so much happiness and love that there's so much spare to just throw around at everyone. Yeah, and if you don't, abundance. you need to just draw everything back to yourself and just top it right back up again and figure out the system that keeps it topping. Because if it keeps just getting shipped away at, something in your operating standards is not right. There's a quote that I heard from someone, something about if you live for the praises of men, you'll die by their criticisms. Totally. And it seems like that's the, I think that's, Probably the top three issue I find with youth today and our society today is they don't realise how valuable they are to themselves. So we could all go around to people in the street and be like, name three negative things about yourself, they'll rattle them off like that. Mm. But tell me three good characteristics about yourself, virtues. Yeah. Not just skills, but virtues. I've asked them to thousands of students and I've hardly had any comeback, only a handful I can count on my hand. Yeah. Saying, well, I'm generous and this and this and this is how I can tell you. Yeah. It's like, that that lack of that lack of knowledge of awareness and value in yourself, I it's think, de- is yeah, huge. it's detrimental to your future. Mm. Yeah, and that's why, and that we get them to list their strengths and weaknesses. And I, I always tell them, you know, you don't feel bad if you initially list more weaknesses and strengths. This is part of the process, and most people inherently do that. And I think it's the role of mentors like us to be able to act like a mirror, because you can't see your face without a reflection. Physically, you can't. You can't see even the side profile. Even the term I got you back is a war, a war term because I literally I can't see my back and you've got my back. Yeah. And I think the role of mentors and parents and any of like one in a relational influential position is to be able to give feedback to and point out those gold things you see in people. So like, yeah. you actually are really generous. It's not because I'm just making it up. It's because you display that. 
Did you yeah. know you did that? It's yeah. amazing. I want you to go do that again. Yeah, one of my students last year, um, she's like, uh, she's got so many creative talents, a great creative eye, um, social media skills that through the roof, great photographer, but her biggest block was just herself, to be mm -hmm. honest. Like yeah. I, I was, I was getting, you know, we were working collaboratively on, on gigs I was getting, like we, we, I was getting a paid to do for her creative eye while she was studying, but yet she thought she was worth, she, she struggled to really see self-worth. And when she was on a semester break and she wasn't here and she just dipped again because she wasn't around. And then I got her to come in and I said, okay, well, you sit here and you write down all your strengths and your weaknesses. I'm gonna go over there and write all the strengths and weaknesses I think you have. And then when we came back, she had a million weaknesses and not even one strength. Yeah. Like, mm. so until she, until we overcame this, this personal issue, she was never gonna be able to professionally expand. Mm -hmm. And this it, is that going inwards first and getting it all sorted before you're really able to get out there. That's right, and you can't sustain, your, your goals can't be sustained and succeed based on your weaknesses. <laughs> you, no. can't, you can't just major in your weaknesses. You don't just go to a job interview, for example, and be like, hey, here's my weaknesses. Yeah. Hire me based on my weaknesses. Totally. Date me based on my weaknesses. Yeah. It's like, no, you gotta, you gotta have some value in yourself. Gabe, how can people best support you and, um, what 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 some sites we can give people today? So you got the Institute of Fashion. The, the what's the what's the site there we can put? Oh, is this the, is this my plug? This is our plug, <laughs> yeah. This is our plug. Um, you know, if you want to get into fashion, just Google things in fashion. If I come up in your feed, then give us a click. If not, do whatever you want to do. But yeah, we are a fashion college. We're Hunter Institute of Fashion. Um, that I want to leave the rest up to you. Seriously, you would have already found me if you want to be. Yeah, part of what we do. Nice. Um, I'm on a main road and we don't have a large sign. I, I don't want to be um, a glowing McDonald's light. I want the right people to find us. Um, so if you're the right person, you'll eventually come across what we do. Yeah, I, I love that. Gabe, thanks so much for your time. Love to do round two another time. Love no it. No worries. Thanks, brother. Cheers, man. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It really means so much to me that thousands and thousands of people you send emails and inboxes and tune in each episode are just responding so well to a genuine chat to people about where things are at in their lives and how they think about things. I just want to have authentic chats because there's so much propaganda. The media is full of agendas and I just, I'm just a curious dude. If you go to patreon.com.au forward slash Matt Purcell, I really encourage you to be able to support this podcast financially, even like five bucks a month. That goes a long way for us because we have to often travel to visit our guests to Sydney. I'm from Newcastle or we fly to Melbourne, we fly to Brisbane, we'll fly wherever we can to be able to meet our guests because we believe that the genuine chats, a big part of the genuine chats is a result of being face-to-face. -face. And I really want to keep that standard up and that will be really great if you enjoyed this episode. And also jump on mattpersell.com where you can find ebooks more episodes and blogs about the guests that I've interviewed. So thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time, God bless. We'll see you soon.